Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer. Buddha at the Gas Pump is an ongoing series of interviews with spiritually awakening people. I've done hundreds of them now, and if you've watched hundreds, you've heard me say this over and over again, but if you, if you haven't, and if this is new to you, and you'd like to check out previous ones, please go to batgap.com, B-A-T-G-A-P, and check the past interviews menu, or you'll find all the previous ones archived in several different ways. This program is made possible by the support of appreciative listeners and viewers, so if you appreciate it and feel like helping to support it, there's a PayPal button on every page of the site, and also a donate page that explains other ways of supporting it if you don't like PayPal. My guest today is a real honor to have her on. It's Dr. Jean Houston, PhD. First I'll read her little bio and then make a few comments. Um, Jean is a scholar philosopher, educator, and a recognized pioneer of the human potential movement. She's widely recognized as a visionary leader and multicultural expert. She's the author of over 30 books exploring human possibilities and positive action in the world, which is interesting because she says she hates to write, so maybe she's masochistic, I don't know. <laughs> and, uh, uh, she served as an advisor in human and cultural development for UNICEF, and to national and international heads of state. She actually helped Hillary Clinton write that book, um, It Takes a Village to Raise a Child. Jean has devoted her life to developing processes to activate the latent abilities in individuals, groups, organizations, and societies. Over the last 60 years, Dr. Houston has worked in over 100, and I think it's 109 countries now, right? As an international, right. Yeah, international speaker and teacher. She is the Chancellor of Meridian University and a dedicated champion of the human spirit. So thank you, Jean, and thank you so much for... Uh, we, she's probably spent a total of about three hours working through technical things to get this to, more, to work more. So I really appreciate your patience and perseverance in laboring through that with us. You know, it's said in uh, Buddhist and Hindu circles that we have a huge mountain of karma and that when we come into this life, we couldn't possibly take the whole mountain with us. We wouldn't be able to work that much off. So we just take a little bucket or a suitcase and that's what we work off in this life. So I feel like you kind of represent a huge mountain of wisdom and experience. And in the past week, I've only been able to take a little bucket from that mountain that I've been working through primarily in the form of listening to a number of your uh, interviews and talks and also reading these two books, which is what my local library happened to have, The Wizard of Us, which is a sort of a deep analysis of the story of The Wizard of Oz, and Mystical Dogs, which is a story of all many of the dogs you've owned over the years and, um, and equally deep considerations of the lessons you've learned from and, and with those dogs. But if my suitcase or bucket doesn't happen to match yours, and if there are things that I don't know about you or don't think to ask or anything else that come to mind during this interview, interview please feel free to just lead us off in any direction that you're inspired to do. So one interesting thing about you that one learns when you know, beginning to become familiar with you is that you have met and befriended an incredible range of 
people, everything from Ronald Reagan, uh, although he wasn't so much of a friend because yes. he tried to take your dog away. That's uh, right. <laughs> um, tried uh, to buy my dog. Yeah, tried to buy your <laughs> beloved Chicky, I believe the dog's name was. Yeah. Um, uh, Eleanor Roosevelt, Edgar Bergen, yes. who was the, the ventriloquist that had the puppet, Charlie McCarthy, Helen Keller, Albert Einstein, Pierre Teilhard de Chardin, Abraham Maslow, Joseph Campbell, Margaret Mead, Hillary Clinton, and I'm sure dozens of others that you could name. So, wow, you have some interesting karma in terms of you know, meeting these brilliant, influential people and, and being one yourself. I guess it, you know, birds of a feather kind of a thing. Well, it's true. I've been extremely fortunate in having met some of the most interesting people of the last three centuries. I mean, I've known plenty of people who were born in the, uh, in the 19th century. In fact, I remember when I was three years old, I attended probably the last march of uh, the Civil War veterans on, from both sides. And an old man came up to me, and uh, an old Confederate fellow, he was very tall, or I was very short, and he leaned down and he took my hand. He said, little lady, you're shaking the hand that shook the hand of my pappy, and my pappy shook the hand of Jefferson. Yeah, Thomas, Thomas Jefferson. So, I, you know, some people have a kind of fractal return for certain kinds of events and patterns, and mine has always been that I seem to have been I'm I'm like the 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 female Forrest Gump, you know. I seem to have been <laughs> in the right place in the right time to meet these people. I mean, I I met Teilhard de Chardin by literally running into him and knocking him down. And uh, he picked me up. He said, "Are you planning to run like that for the rest of your life?" I said, "Well, it looks that way." He said, "Well, bon voyage." I said, "Bon voyage." And thereafter, for the next well, almost three years, off and on, we met and walked in Central Park together which got me started in my interest in, in the whole evolutionary agenda, which is both part in our human givenness with all its problems and glory, as well as perhaps it is the fact that we don't just live in the universe, but the universe lives in us. As I was reading and, and listening to various things about you, one of the first experiences that jumped out to me at least as being really pivotal in your spiritual awakening was when you you watched the movie Song of Bernadette with your father which is a <laughs> wonderful little movie that and and you know where I'm going with this so why, why don't you take the story from there all right well my father was an agnostic baptist from texas married to my mother who was a sicilian catholic my mother was born in sicily her name was maria nunziata serafina graziella fiorina perpetua tadaro married to jack houston of texas and he had to become catholic to marry my mother but he just uh, he and the priest traded jokes instead of theology and the priest finally said jack you're just a natural born pagan here i'll give you a learner's permit so we can get married okay but any kid comes along you got to raise him catholic all right so when i was five years old my father was kicked off of the Bob Hope show for an excess of high spirits. This happened quite frequently. His energy was... was, was Polarity was, was, and whatnot. That's right. So anyway, um, so he remembered his promise, and we found ourselves living with my mother's parents in Brooklyn, New York. Well, Brooklyna is my grandmother, and sent to Catholic school. Well, everything was fine, except my father would gag up my catechism 
and give me the most interesting questions to ask the poor little nun every morning. Like, uh, Sister Teresa, I counted my ribs and I counted Jerry, Joey Bonjabella's ribs. And I want to know if God made Eve out of Adam's, uh, Adam's uh, rib, how come? And I would have all the children lift their undershirts to prove that the girls and boys, we all have the same number of ribs. Sister Teresa, when Jesus rose, was that because God filled him full of helium? Sister Teresa, and then the big question, the big one that haunts the mind of every little Catholic child. Did Jesus ever have to go to the bathroom? That did it. Sister Teresa blew up. And, you know, every time I asked a question, which I did every day, she added a million years or so. At the end of the first grade, I had 300 million years in purgatory to my credit on the big, this big sheet, Gene Houston's years in purgatory. And I went home crying because I believe this stupid stuff. And my father roared with laughter. He said, come on, kiddo, I'll show you what they did to a real saint. Threw me on his shoulders and ran past the Sicilian neighbors going, purgatory, 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 purgatory. Here comes the purgatory special. And the Italian Sicilian neighbors would say, hey, there goes a crazy jack, a crazy jack. Watch out, you go kill a bambino. Hey. And so we went to see the song of Bernadette, which was so beautiful, you know. Everything was fine, and the old lady sitting next to me with her chest full of holy medals would say, What a beautiful saint, you know. And then came the great moment where the Virgin of Mary appears in the grotto to Bernadette. All of us are in this rapture of religious devotion. It's really quite a beautiful scene when suddenly this horrible, mule-like, Whittian laugh begins to fill the entire theater and it is coming from my father, who's in complete hysterics. You know, ha, ha, ha. Daddy, I said, stop that. This is the holy part. I know, but you know who is that That up there playing the Virgin Mary? No, Daddy, who? Linda. I met her last year at a party in Beverly Hills. Linda Darnell. Hot dog. I told her she'd go far. Ha, ha, ha. Well, the, the, the Sicilians are all making very nasty gestures at him at this point. I said, Daddy, get out of here. Go to the bathroom, which he does. And he comes back and still the same hilarity. Well, going home, I am full. I am full of, of purpose. I know I have to see the Virgin Mary. And I run home and I run up to uh, uh, where we had a, a guest room and a, a closet that was empty because my puppy, Chicky, had just filled it uh, with her own nine puppies. And I got the puppies out of the way and I began to... I figured they looked just like a grotto, and I began to pray, Virgin Mary, please, please, please show up in the closet for me the way you did, you know, for, for Bernadette. And I would count to 10, and I would give up candy. I'd give up candy for, you know, six months, and I counted to higher and higher numbers. And always there were more puppies back in the closet because poor old Chicky kept bringing them back. And finally I said, uh, Virgin Mary, I've given up everything. I don't know what else. <sighs> Please show up. And I, I'm going to count to whatever it was, 168 or something, and please show up. And I closed my eyes and I could almost feel her coming. You know, I knew she was flying over the Brooklyn Bridge looking for my... And finally I opened my eyes. No virgin. Very chicky had gotten all nine puppies back in the closet. And I gave up. And I got up and I had no thoughts whatsoever. And I went over to the window seat and looked down and saw my grandfather, Prospero Tadaro, putting the smudge pots under the fig tree. 
Uh, he knew of his feet only by rumor. <laughs> he was so heavy, you know, so he could barely bend down. <laughs> anyway, and uh, suddenly the whole reality opened up. I didn't see or hear anything different, but all of reality was there. And I knew that I and the fig tree in the yard and my grandfather and my idea of the Virgin Mary and new wheat in Kansas and the little boy uh, outside of uh, Iowa, I think it was, as we went by in the train who would wave his hand at me and 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 the, the autistic man who sold comic books outside of Bloomingdale's, all of reality was there for the fish in Sheepshead Bay and old ladies dying in Shore Road Hospital. And it was like a, what we now know as a vast hologram in which everything was united with everything else in this great fellowship of, of great oneness. And then I could hear my father enter downstairs laughing and immediately all of reality began to laugh. And years later, when I could read Dante in the original, the great lines, the riso dell'universo, the joy that spins the universe, and that is what it was. And so powerful, Rick, so powerful was that experience that it really sustained me for the rest of my life. I never had an experience like that again, but I saw the unity of all being. And then, of course, in recent years where I spent a lot of time studying quantum physics, which also addresses that factor, and that we are, if you will, part of that unified field, God's stuff, if you will, that is immersed in this biodegradable space-time suit that we wear, but that we have access to that kind of totality, as I did when I was five, six years Even ago. though you never had another peak experience like that, perhaps, not like that, I, I not get like the that. impression, though, that it it altered you in a way that was abiding, you know, that it, 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 it wasn't, it was abiding. you never went abiding. back to yes. the way you had been. I mean, the way I had been, had been a child. And suddenly it was something, it was as if infinity became quite, not non-local, but local for me. And I was always in that state of, what should we say, radical empathy and radical imminence at the same time. Always meaning you continued to be that way. I think so. And even during the, the, the nasty parts or the, the downers of my life, it was always there as an undergirding beingness and sureness. That's what most people say about spiritual awakenings is that when they happen, they can be quite flashy or dramatic or interesting or whatever. But after a while, one returns to normalcy and yet something has been incorporated or integrated and so you know you actually might be living the same state and yet it doesn't seem unusual you just take it for granted mm -hmm. because it's become part and parcel of your ordinary functioning well it allowed me to continue to see this in other people and i mean if i have any gift at all it that is it to to see the god in hiding to see the person as part of the great unity and even though they're behaving terribly to continue to see them and then, you know, create processes, ideas, interactions that would be able to evoke this essence, this primordial essence that we all contain and to see it. And it's the own unique, remarkable, strange refraction that is there in reflection in each human being. Yeah, there's a line in the Gita about the sage being able to see the self in all beings and all beings in the self. Yes, yes. Oh, nice. Going from the 
sublime to the mundane again. We can keep swinging back and forth. So um, your father was a writer for the Bob Hope Show. Yes, and Burns and Allen and Fibber McGee and Molly and all of them. And Abbott and Costello, I think. Didn't you say he wrote Who's on First? All right, this is what he did. He was with Abbott and Costello when they were in vaudeville. And, th- and, that, and that bit actually began as a, as a vaudeville piece. And then my father was also working on the movie in which it occurred, which was a, a 1941, a baseball movie. And, and uh, my father claimed to have written the joke, which I think he did. But when you look at the joke itself, it's Talmudic. It's a Jewish joke. It really is. So I think it was my father and two Jewish guys. Because I think they claim it also, <laughs> so it really was. And a lot of the old, the jokes that came out of you know Hollywood, especially in those days, you had a you had a, a few uh, non-Jewish writers, and you had a lot of Jewish writers because comedy was a sort of a, a Jewish cottage industry then and even and even now. So that's what I really think it was. It's true. For some reason, a lot of comedians seem to be Jewish. It's like. You know, for a culture that has actually seen more than its share of tragedy, uh, they they seem to have a an edge in terms of comedy, and maybe there's maybe there's a connection there. Well, when you when you look at the way that they you study Torah with a whole group of guys, and you take that same group of guys studying Torah and davening and and trying to work to to incite the admiration of the rabbi. Uh, it, it's, it is very similar to what would happen, let's say, in the old RCA building, where you have the same guys 50 years later trying to get a smile out of Sid Caesar or somebody like that. So they're the same parallel. But uh, when you look at rabbinical work with the Torah and the interaction of, of the young students, it's very similar to what happens in the, in the, in the comedy group. I thought it was an interesting story you told about Edgar Bergen and Charlie McCarthy, where he was mm-hmm. in a hotel room and he, you kind of came up behind him without his knowing it and overheard him interacting with his, his dummy. Yeah. Go ahead, tell us that one. Well, yeah, Dad was writing for Edgar Bergen at that time, and he would take me everywhere. He said, hey, kid, you want to go talk to Charlie? Charlie was the little mannequin, the little puppet. And I'd love to do that because Bergen would then, you know, interact with me through the puppet and we would have say funny things to each other. And I love doing that. So we went up to uh, the hotel room and um, he didn't hear us, but he was talking to Charlie. Edgar Bergen was talking to Charlie with great intensity and fascination because he was asking Charlie ultimate questions. Charlie, what is the nature of love? What is, what is faith? What does it mean to be a full human being? Uh, what, is, what is the difference between mind and reality? Why do I feel separate? And this little dummy with this little clacking wooden jaw, Jules would say, well, bargain? And the wisdom of millennia would pour out of his little clacking jaw. And we could actually see, we were sort of, he was sort of catacornered to us. And what we could see was Bergen's mouth more than, you know, and, and yet Being his a ventriloquist, it wasn't moving yes, his mouth, yeah. As, and his eyes filled with astonishment. And my father, the agnostic Baptist, couldn't stand it. And he coughed and Bergen turned around and said, oh, oh Jack, you, you caught us. And, and Yeah, Ed, what in the world are you doing? When I'm talking to Charlie, he's the wisest person I know. 
Yeah, but but that's you. That's your mind coming out of that cockamamie dummy's mouth. I know, I know. But you know, when I ask him these questions and he answers, I haven't got the faintest idea of what he's going to say. And what he says astounds me with his brilliance. It's so much more than I know. Whoa. And I could feel, I could feel my future <laughs> walking across my mind at that point. So much more than what we are. We contain so much more than what we know. And then when you study the nature of the depths of the human psyche, as well as what we now know about the way that we are intertwined with the unity of that means the all-knowingness of the universe, that we have so many levels and layers that are so much more than we know from our historical existence, that in a sense put me on the path. Yeah, I'll bet you've had that experience thousands of times when you've been up speaking in front of groups where something will come out of your mouth and you'll think, where did that come from? Where did yeah. that come from? Yeah. You know, right? <laughs> yeah. Actually, you, um, I think it was in, I don't remember which of these two books it was in, but I was just reading last night where you were talking about an exercise in which one could sort of go into the, you know, the mythical level, perhaps it was, um, where resides all the sort of wisdom of the ages and, and which great inventors and composers and so on managed have managed to tap into and and have actually attributed, you know, many of their works to, uh, that one can actually learn culture the ability to do this. I mean, so many say, whence does it come from? It is so much more than I've ever studied or known. In the classical mystical experience, there is a stage which is called voices and visions, where the mystic or the enlightened person or the person who's in a state of radical creativity just seems to know, begins to experience, and sometimes even discovers things that are much too early in history. To um, Hildegard of Bingen is a, a superb example, you know, that she's, she's born in 1098, dies around, what, 1183 or something like that. But music that she composed, in, some of it was several hundred years ahead of where it should be, especially in, in the polyphony of the music, and ideas that she had for the, the nature of plants, the nature of psychological states. Uh, it's really extraordinary. When you look at Leonardo da Vinci, who pursues states of mind and expression and invention that are hundreds of years ahead of, of uh, his time. Well, yeah, but we see this all the time. It's just that those are famous examples. And I, part of my work has been to work with people, inventors or, or creative people, and to bring them to a state of awareness in which the thing that they're looking for is already there. It is as if you know, they say on earth as it is in heaven. Well, let us call, let us expand our metaphor of heaven and say that that's actually the, the nature of reality itself. I mean, obviously there are, uh, you know, if you have, we're now discovering, for example, just in our galaxy alone, how many multiple millions and billions of, of uh, planets of which at least 10% or, or the stars of which 10% or more would have perhaps, perhaps habitable uh, planets, we're, we're, you know, and that we are, you know, we are on a medium-sized star 
at an outer wing of this particular galaxy. I think that's where they put the skunk works. You, know, you put your regular, you put your regular businesses on the highway, and then back, you know, the lower forty, um, you you have the place your experimental lab, and it's almost like this is a laboratory. This is God's school. We have enough sufficiency of chaos and consciousness and complexity uh, to warrant this being a place where uh, we God seeds filled with enormous levels of yearning are reaching for something more, which is what I would call speciation, you know, the emergence of the next stages. But it always seems to occur, if you look at history, it's, it's always in times of uh, levels of trauma and chaos that sets the fire that is hot enough within us that we begin to go beyond our local uh, history and our local selves and begin to move into something else. That's why so many people feel a call and they don't know what, but we're, we're in calling times. That's why the, the hero's journey, you know, which uh, Joe Campbell and I did, uh, we, well, we did any number of seminars together, etc. But this is something that we were always looking at. We did have one big fight because the call is the first part of the hero's journey. And he, he didn't seem to give much credence to a heroine's journey. You know, good old 1920s Irishman that he was even Catholic. And uh, I would talk about the heroine's journey. He says, well, you do it then. <laughs> I've done enough on the hero's journey. Um, and I think what we're seeing around the world now is a quickening of the understanding of the heroine's journey. So that's why I wrote that book, um, The Wizard of Us, because... It's a classical heroine's journey, and it differs from the hero's journey, because what does she do that the hero often does not do? She stops along the way and she helps people or beings. She takes the scarecrow down from the his, his pole and says, join us, join us, and helps him discover that, boy, not only does he have a brain, he's got a very great intelligence. And with regard to the, the uh, tin man who is caught, in his mechanism and is rusted, she she oils him and helps him release his his true sympathies. The fact that he has, if not a physical heart, he has an enormous emotional genius, and does the same in his own way with the with the lion, and lets him find his courage and his fortitude and his strength and his goodness. So that's very different. That is the heroine's journey as opposed to just the the young adolescent male. <laughs> You know, trying to find himself, you know, fight himself past his obstructions and his high hormone problems. You know, <laughs> but there's many other things. A lot of people these days, obviously, are interested in spirituality and awakening and enlightenment, um, whatever we want to call it. And but I think a lot of times it gets sort of dumbed down a little bit. Um, people think of it in terms of well, you, you kind of realize your essential nature, which is unbounded and, and pure awareness, and, and in doing so, you, you realize that you are not a person, that you are just this sort of absolute level, and that the world is illusory and not worthy of very serious consideration, and you're done. And, you know, I think you have a much more nuanced and rich perspective on the whole thing, that this pure absolute, or whatever you want to call it, our true nature is not just some plain vanilla field, but is a vast repository of all the intelligence, energy, and creativity that we see expressing itself in the universe. 
with all its diversity and amazing qualities, and that one can sort of be a co-participant or co-creator in that mm-hmm. creative process by tapping into that. Is that a fair assessment of, of the way you would see things? Uh, yes, and, and to start at the, the basic level of that, we are not encapsulated bags of skin dragging around a dreary little ego. We are, we are organism environment. We are symbiotic with the, with the whole. Uh, and, you know, it's not just great uh, spiritual uh, wizards, you know, who have said that. And you find it in the most ancient of literatures, but, but you certainly find it also uh, in the new physics that seems to give a new level of metaphor and credence to that. I, I mean, to give you an example, I have never met a stupid child. I've met incredibly system and reductionist mind and spirit reductionist forms of education because a child is, is already uh, a beingness of wonders and how to keep the wonder factor going. That's why one of the things that I've done with when I was working with UNICEF and even with the UNDP, forms of development. It's the big developmental part of it, the UNDP. I did help try to shift schools around the world, especially, you know, in countries where the British <laughs> imperialism had in, put in British-type schools, which were really pretty terrible, and schools that the Brits themselves had abandoned 100 years before. But realizing putting in schools and where art is central to the curriculum, as is story, where a child dances and sings and emotes and feels information in multiple ways, the whole body-mind, the whole mind of the whole child, and therein we find that children do not fail if they're acting information, if they're sculpting it, if they are singing it and dancing it. And I've done many, many studies on this. And you, then you find that the teachers get interested too and the kids start with going to school and, and, and loving school because it is school becomes an evolutionary quickening and not the place where one is contained and, and constrained within very limited Western notions of what the mind is, which is not true, you see. So I think you wrote a book called The Possible Human or something like that, right? Yeah, it was something like that. It was called The Possible Human. Early book. Please describe what you think a human being living his or her full potential would be like. And, And then a second question from that would be, you know, what would a world be like that was comprised of such? Okay. Well, I think they, that they would have a natural joyousness, That's first of all. I think that they would have very rich, I think they do. It's not what I think. I think it's what they do. They, you, have, you have access to an acute sensory awareness, not just the five senses, but probably eight or nine other ones beyond there. But you would also have them within yourself what are called the interior proprioceptors, so that you would experience inner music, inner touch, inner feeling, and thus you could drop in an idea, any idea, and the idea would then take on a kind of virtual reality, fullness. I mean, when I have studied 55 of some of the most creative people in North America, and among my research subject was Bucky Fuller, whose last design I live in, the house that he designed, Bucky Fuller, uh, Margaret Mead, you know, who worked with me for, we worked together for the last six years of her life. She essentially lived with us part of the time. 
Joseph Campbell. I mean, it, it, and, and many people whose whose names you you do not know, but who had pushed the membrane of the possible in terms of their own lives. They were, in all cases, they were fascinated by their own minds, and and they were spelunkers in the caves of their own creativity, and and they just used much more of themselves. So they were imaginative. Imagination is very important because imagination takes us into the realm of the imaginal the coded potencies of knowledge, of understanding that is there beneath the surface crust of consciousness. And therein, they use their minds and bodies in very different ways, which I, I teach people how to do, so that you do tap into the, the, not just the ground of your being, but into the depths of beingness itself, which lies beyond your, your everyday local use. We expand use. You know, and it just occurred to me, I, when I asked Margaret Mead, what would you like on your tombstone? She said something fascinating. She said, she lived long enough to be of some use. <laughs> you know? And I thought, boy, that's what I want on my tomb to be of use. But it was also that she used in the best possible way so much more of herself. And just it didn't just put it on the shelf like most of us do. And she remained in many ways childlike. And I found this too with Joe Campbell, you know maybe not child, but certainly adolescent in, in some ways, and his joyousness and his just bliss. We would walk together in nature. I remember things, and he was happy, happy, just celebrating the sheer vivid gorgeousness of, of, of life. So that's part of it also. So I would say that they have, their inner life is as rich as their outer life, in fact, even richer. And thus they, they have access to levels and depths of consciousness that allow them to commune, not just with, let's say, the infinite inside, but to commune with the great archetypal and symbolic structures that themselves are part of this codedness that we have access to, which we're referring to as the imaginal realm. Not imaginary, but the imaginal realm. And, and that imaginal realm, and it's very close to what Plato called the eidos, the divine ideas that we all contain. And that's what also what sustains and feeds their creativity and why they don't give up. If, if you had to guess, what percentage of the population would you say are actually functioning like that these, these days now out of the eight, well, set eight billion or so people on the planet? I, I have no idea. But you I mean, know, I, I, really guess. I mean, like one percent, half a percent, 10 percent. I, I don't know. I mean, let, let's put it this way. Um, and with all these countries and different cultures that I've visited, in some cases lived with, uh, I find that when they are in different states, whether they are in ritual states or dance states or states of uh, celebration, uh, I, I would say that it, it, it's a very high percentage. When they go back to everyday ordinariness, it then shrinks. So it's it's not what is the percentage, it's just what is rising and falling. Everybody who's you know watching this or listening to this knows that they have been in these states where suddenly they are the knower, the knowledge, the, and, the, and the knowing. They are the dancer, the dancing, and the, and the danced. Uh, they are the, the joke, the laughter, and, and the laughing itself. It, it, is, it's, it's, it just so all comes together, and we all have access to that. So I, I I would say sometimes it's fifty percent of the way. <laughs> sometimes it's well, it it's I, I can't put that. It depends on where you are or where you agree to be, and 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 the great practice of joy. 
Joy seems to be key here to that opening. I think Gallup has done polls which indicate that a, quite a significant percentage of the population has had glimpses of the kind of thing you're talking about. Yes. And so the question is how to, how to make it more than a glimpse. And, um, you know, and I guess the question there is, you know, what is it that suppresses or prevents it from being more than a glimpse? And, you know, why don't we function this way all the time and what can we do okay. on a mass scale okay. to, to be all able right. to do that? Now we're cooking with gas. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. One of the things that I'm doing uh, as chairman of the palace. Yeah. Uh, explain what the palace is. The palace is, is one of the great movie houses of, built in 1929, you know, before they stopped doing that. And uh, 3,600 seats and a place of a great deal of celebration, art, as well as movies. And, and now we, we continue to do that. Uh, it occupies all of 175th Street and, and Broadway. I'll be there in the next few days. I have a kind of meta-sangha. You know, a sangha is a meeting of communal minds. And in it are Lynn McTaggart, Dwayne Elgin, the physicist. You, you get the idea. You know? and, and, and we meet often every week, and we discuss the new physics and the emerging spirituality. Okay. One of our members is Lynn McTaggart, who wrote The Field, The Bond, and now The Power of Eight, the, the intention experiments, you know, what happens when you bring people together in intention. And she has gotten phenomenal results, especially with regard to healing. I mean, I belong to a circle here in Ashland, Oregon, where we meet every Monday night when we're around, and we help people who have healing issues, you know, and the healing doesn't have to be just on the body, though often it is. It could be in the mind or in the, the, their sense of limitation. And we see people open up, open up, open up. I mean, a good friend of mine who was just ridden with cancer is no longer ridden with cancer. He was preparing his death. He gave everything away. And now I just had dinner with him the other night. And he was in an extraordinary state of ebullience and abundant healthiness. I mean, we've seen this so much. So I said to Lynn and, and my group, I said, and at the palace also, let us, because um, we then take our discoveries and we bring it in, present it to very large audiences. I said, let's do it with hundreds of thousands of people. Because Lynn and I had also, it was her project, but I helped in it, bringing Israelis and Palestinians to really reach across, to really see each other. And, and the people of the Arab Emirate to really see and touch each other by, by Zoom and live stream. We, done part, and then to try to raise the level of peacefulness in Jerusalem. And in fact, after that, we did see this. But now I said, let's do it as a great, joyous lifting of spirit around the world. And we'll do it in early 2019, in the spring. And we will have this great collective of hundreds of thousands of people tuning in and with the intention of lifting the human spirit lifting the cadence of joy. We're going to do that, and we have the technology to do that. And also, everybody will be able to see a lot of everybody else because they will be live streaming. I'm doing a lot of this now. Uh, okay, and then have regular follow-throughs of continued connection, but also in spirit, spirited, spirited communion, if you will, but also knowing that this already brings with it a spiritual momentum doesn't it? And then what is the follow-through? Is the follow-through some of the things that I do, because I created a field called social artistry, 
human development in the light of social change and the inner development and the psychological development and the spiritual development that seems to be necessary to allow a human being in their lifetime to achieve a whole new level of understanding, celebrating, creating with their humanness, and then very real things that they can do, whether it is the sustainable millennium, millennium development goals, but very real things that they can do in their lives to make the difference, to be let them become the difference that makes the difference. So this becomes a worldwide form. Galloping chutzpah at its best, I suppose. <laughs> Some people are pretty pessimistic about the prospects of the human race. I mean, there's, a, yeah. there's an environmentalist sure. or ecologist named oh, well. Guy McPherson who feels like we're, yes. we're cooked, you know, we're done, and maybe we have a decade left <laughs> before everybody dies. Um, and that was, I mean, I don't get the sense that you are pessimistic. No. Um, no. And so, but then if you actually look at his, his facts, you know, there's some pretty serious things that could happen, you well, know, sure. meth- methane release, releasing and all kinds of things. So how do you think it's going to turn around? If it does. Well, you, 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 used, you used the metaphor. You said we're cooked. And at one level, that's if you look at just the logic of it, you would have to say, as we're going now, by the end of the century, there'll be 150 million humans left. We will look awful. And we'll be tripping over abandoned electronic appliances. I mean, yes, that, that's a metaphor. And it's a very, it's the kind of metaphor that appears that appeals to the very old brain, the old reptilian amphibian that is trying to keep us safe, but is scared all the time. I think, we cook. yes, at one level that would be true. But then I say, but what else can we cook up? So I'm, I'm trying to find ways of cooking up uh, the human potential, the human capacity, the human... The fact is, I don't think that a 13.8 billion year experiment that possibly began with a big bang has is in at least in our world is ready to just sort of finish with us the experiment of the human experiment being over i don't think that that's true and i don't think it necessarily has to do with running off to other planets so the part of it may be so no i think that we have barely begun to tap into our higher usefulness and our higher use i just refuse to believe that and that's why i'm looking for what is the momentum that would activate the human spirit to begin to act not in these crazy giving up ways. This is part of the, the devolution that we're seeing is, is part of our loss of faith in ourselves and the loss of our belief. Uh, but because we have no lure of becoming, the old stories are over or they've dropped out. Now we either have to have the regeneration of the story or the whole new story as not only a, your own unique story, but a collective story coming back into time. And that's what I'm looking for. And there are factors, and there are all kinds of factors that are rising up that speak to that. One of the most important, I believe. Now remember, since 1958, <laughs> I've been traveling quite constantly over the planet, seeing so many societies, seeing their, their myths, their stories, their creation myths. We're in the midst of a new creation. A new creation always is preceded by a dissolution. We're in the time of big-time dissolution, aren't we? But we're also in the time of recreation. What do we see that's unique? The rise of women all over the world to full partnership with men in the whole domain of, of not just the human agenda, but the life agenda itself, you see. With women, the emphasis is on process rather than on product, 
on making things cohere and develop and grow. That's one thing. Another is, yes, the technology, which can be used for absolute ill <laughs> or deep goodness, and people being able to connect. But once you can connect in one way, let's say technologically, then the, the connection becomes something more than just the technology or the technique. It becomes, a, it is already a meta level. It is a metaphysical level within ourselves and between us that is also arising all over the earth. In my walks with Teilhard de Chardin in the 1950s, you know, this is what he was seeing. He was seeing, and we would talk about that. I was 14 years old, you know, and he would say, oh, Jean, the people of your time will be taking the tiller of the world, but you cannot go directly. You have to touch every culture, every people, and that has become possible. Now, we're not necessarily using it wisely, but all over the world, people are looking for ways of wisdom for the great communion, the great connectivity, and not the following one madman or one you know leader on a horse, but to follow instead some kind of instinctive presence, a presencing that is happening, I find everywhere. But I do find it, quite frankly, around the world, not just because I'm a woman, but among women. Uh, it, it, it's because with women, I said the emphasis on process and continuity and making things live and grow. And this then, you see, is releasing men to be what they can be instead of following in the ancient patriarchal traditions. Uh, some new traditions, new possibilities, a whole new story is there brimming and we get pictures of it from all over and just uh, just seeing it, it, it bubble. I I, you know, I, in the time that we, the days that we're doing this now, we've just had an extraordinary funeral that I just watched on television of John McCain, who represents both the patriarchy and his moving away from it in his own life in interesting ways. And Aretha Franklin, you know, who could sing. Uh, she had a gospel voice and she would sing the spirit into whatever was the subject that she was singing about. I mean, whether it was on respect or thinking there is, but the, these are aspects of these these different sides of this this arising energy. Don't you find it in your life? Yeah. Firstly, personally, I've often felt like an instrument of the divine, and I think you feel that way too. That there's something larger that sort of governs my life. You know, sometimes people say about this show, for instance, "Oh, it's such a wonderful thing you're doing," and I have to, I do a double take. I think, "Am I doing anything? What am I doing?" <laughs> it's just, <laughs> and uh, I, and and if we kind of extrapolate out to the to the world at large, I don't think that anything ever gets accomplished merely by human effort, because I think that, as we were saying earlier humans derive their inspiration and intelligence and ability from something much deeper which we all share and that that's, that something deeper seems to be kind of rising up now or becoming yes. enlivened you know and it's like if the ground of a forest becomes much more fertile somehow then all the plants just begin to thrive and maybe weeds or noxious things that thrive better in, in infertile soil begin to die so I kind of feel that there's a big shift, as you were saying just now, and you know a lot of things are dying. Uh, you know, structures and systems and ways of thinking that are no longer really sustainable, and that a lot of other things are emerging and, and beginning to flourish, and that 
it's exciting to watch it happen and and it's not necessarily obvious to most people that it is happening and some people may be feeling like all oh, hell's breaking loose and and we're all going to you know perish but um if you if you can see the signs i think that something good is happening well this is what i see all over the earth you know uh, and and you do see the breakdowns i mean mrs roosevelt who i did know in my mid teens because i was president of my high school in New York City, uh, Julia Richmond, and she was gathering we, those of us who were heads of our general organizations to get us interested in the United Nations and international affairs. And she, uh, she used words like wands, you know, she would evoke in us in our, you know, our well-earned adolescent skepticism. She would invoke in us the, the, the power of the beauty of possibility and being part of the trans formations of, of, of our time. And one day she turned to me and she said, a vaguely imitator, she said, my dear, I rather suspect you're going to have the most interesting career. But remember, my dear, as a professional woman, you can expect to be trashed. She didn't use the word trash, but it was something like that. I just don't remember what it was. And then she said, but remember too, my dear, a woman is just like a tea bag. You put her in hot water and she just gets stronger. You know? <laughs> and I have found that to be true. And this is something else that I find, again, all over the world, the rising energy of women of courage who are getting stronger. They do not make the front page of the newspaper. Uh, they, 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 people say, oh, that poor little woman, but that poor little woman is out there with a lot of other, and they are, they're keeping the race going. They're keeping the energy and the, the new programs. Wherever I go, women, especially women of a certain age, you know, it's, it's like post-menopausal zest. <laughs> you know, they're out there and they're calling in the projects and they are bringing things. Uh, they're following the sequencings of making things happen. Uh, and they are re trying to help the men to also have a new order of a sense of possibilities. And I find this in women scientists, too. You find that it is the men scientists who are talking about the decline, the end, and forget about it, we're out of here. And it is the women who are writing a very different kind of science. Uh, with the warnings, yes. I mean, they're, they're not unrealistic, but also this is what we can do and let us do it. It's not only what we can do, let's do it. I mean, you look at the writing writings of somebody like uh, Hazel Henderson. You're in for a big surprise. She's probably one of the greatest creative economists of this time. And uh, I'll put you in touch with her. But the way she works with economics to create whole new orders, new ways of being, new new possibilities, and really as, as a guide to a, 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 a new kind of world, she is almost unparalleled. Look at Monica Sharma. You know who Monica Sharma is? Oh, I'm a dummy. I'm afraid oh, I'm not. <laughs> Monica Sharma, who is in India. Well, she's like that, but, but and also they're good friends. Monica Sharma is probably one of the most brilliant people alive today. She was head of uh, the whole AIDS thing for the United Nations and knows how to take a small uh, experimental uh, group and go to scale that then affects hundreds of millions of people, as she did with the UN, with the AIDS and HIV-AIDS crisis, among many other kinds of things that she, that she goes back and forth between India and the States, and wrote a very great book on transformational leadership. Monica Sharma.
It's a dense book, but it is filled with brilliant, brilliant of ideas. How is how to make a much better world that works, and this is what I'm finding now. And, and, and I'm just saying that I am noticing, and I can't help but notice that the men are giving us all the, the signs of it's the end. Of, it's the end. It's closing time. It's closing time. Just like I believe it is T. S. Eliot. What is what is it in? Samson Agonistes, where he writes, there are the bar, and they say, it's closing time. But the whole point of closing time, it is closing time of the old story, but it's also opening time for a whole new story. And a lot of creative people, women and some very good men, are really coming together and opening opening this new story. And so in our own ways, we, we, we are very fortunate to be living in ending times, closing times, and opening times. It's like being at the end, uh, caught in the abyss, caught in the great parenthesis, the end of one era, not quite the beginning of a new one, but leaping across and our fingernails holding on, you know, to the the earth of and the, the rocks of the next or order. But we have to invent it. We need to create the lure of becoming. What does the possible society look like? And part of my job is to help create the possible human who then has the wherewithal to have be able to tell the new story and to have the the passion for the possible, the passion of the follow through and do what is absolutely needed to make this happen. In just about every talk and interview I've heard you give, you've said other times thought they were it. They were wrong. wrong. This, this is, is it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I mean, one might argue, okay, yeah, but the Civil War was no picnic or World War One or World War II and, and so on. Those, those might have seemed like it. I think I could answer this question, but I would rather hear you do it. What is it about our time now that is it? And you know, what do you mean by it? And you've well, kind of well, just been saying it, but let's just poke at it a little bit more. All right, all right. It's worldwide. It's worldwide. Everybody's involved. Nobody is innocent of our time. That's that's number one. That's the big thing. It is global. It's this little planet, this beautiful blue and green silver planet floating in the womb of the cosmos, you know. And uh, that looks, you know, I, I helped an astronaut remember what he saw when he was, it was, it was Ed Mitchell was out there. And one of the things he said is that you go out there and you look at the earth and, and he had the music of Camelot coming on out there. You know, the, the optimal society Camelot. And there she is, this beautiful planet. And there was no, there was no division and there were no war scene. And it was, it was this great, incredible, beautiful beingness. And uh, when we saw something happen in us, when we saw our Earth from outer space, and we realized that we were part of this incredible majesty, beauty, a beauty that beyond almost anything that one could imagine, and that we were then became responsible, responsible to really make the difference. And so he went up there an astronaut, and he came back a psychonaut, <laughs> you know, devoted to inner space and created, you know, the, the Institute of Noetic, Noetic Sciences. Yeah, he was a good friend of mine, and I admired him enormously, and his courage and his stick to itness. But your question really is about being at the end of one time and the beginning of a new time. And everybody I know at some point in their life feels this call. It's like the hound of heaven going, you know, at their heels in the morning. For God's sake, stupid, wake up. 
I get it every morning. It's stupid. I wake up. <laughs> like my Sicilian grandmother saying, hey, stupid. <laughs> I still hear, hear that kind of thing. Going, get up and do what you can do and what you have to do. But the thing is that by oneself and just reading the news over and over again, it's a kind of poisoning. And it, it, and it, and it again affects that old reptilian amphibian brain that is trying to be super protective and feared. And how do we create, again, joyous interactions and communities, but we do need something that we are thinking forward. How do we think ourselves forward to a world that works? And that's why I helped invent this whole field called social artistry, in which you, you really do the work on yourself. You have to do the work on yourself. You do understand the powers of inner contemplation, the powers of what healing is. We're built for healing. That's part of our modus vivendi. We are built for healing. And I don't mean healing like, you know, preemptive wars as being a healing force. It has never worked. But healing in which you really see the possibility in the other and the possibilities in the society. And not being told how, but to really begin, not redemption, but evolution. Not salvation, but co-creation. The Buddhists talk about interdependent co-arising, don't they? That as we think of things, those energies are also being thought by the universe herself. And once we can bring this together, there are, just like there were for Hildegard and, and uh, some of the people in the Renaissance, and there's been many kinds of Renaissances, where we suddenly become startling awake to new ways of being, to passionate possibilities in our own field or wherever we are, and we do what we can. We do what we can, wherever and however we are. In my own life, yes, I work on giant <laughs> projects, but I also work locally in just various things that I can do, whether it's on the, uh, well, for example, I'm a, I'm a serious foodie. I'm a, my, there's, I have two very big talents. One is I can talk to any dog, and the other is I'm a decent cook. I'm a good cook because my mother, Maria Nunziata Serafina Graziella, would cook Italian food, and my father from Texas didn't understand it. And so in order to keep them together, I became the world's first fusion cook, making chicken food chicken fried polenta, you know. But I am always looking for ways to cook up new possibilities. When I knew Buckminster Fuller and I came complaining about something, he said, oh, Jane, don't complain. Build a better model. And that's it. What is the better models that we can really build wherever we are with, with whatever, whatever we're doing? Whether it is something I'm very interested in, the co-op movement, you know, in, in grocers, we have one of the, in Ashland, Oregon, we have one of the great, great uh, food cooperatives, whether it's the co-op movement or whether it is what a friend of mine who then used some of my work and became mayor of the town and then she went on and became the president of all the mayors in America. But finding ways of crossing the great divide of otherness in a time of so much exchange and diversity for which very few of us have been prepared for levels of diversity. Before it was just a few diverse people. Now it is all of us thrust into this great cocoon of co-creation and interdependence that we have never been prepared for. That's part of our problem. What do we do in education? What do we do in education? I, mean, I wrote all kinds of books about this sort of thing. How do we 
as I say, cross the great divide of otherness, starting in schools, so that we can see the essence, the brilliance, the imagination, the dance, the the food. Now that's the big one. Uh, the uh, the singing, the, the the different cultural styles of each other, and be stunned and awakened by joy at this great difference, instead of seeing the other as that which is to be feared. I mean, because that's what has brought us to a lot of our present problems. The world has accelerated. The ways of being have accelerated so fast that many people have been, you know, turned on by the ones who are the the uh, the soldiers of fear, the uh, you know, the con men of fear, because it's exciting, and it it appears to our what should we say our reptile ophidian brain, but it also appears it appeals to the negative story, which gives us a thrill. It's like watching a horror movie. But now, it what is the other movie? What is the other story? We are in a virtual reality in which we are co-creators with not just infinity but with each other but to do that we have to tap into the ability to see the other as containing so much more and thus reflecting this back and forth that's the, the new orders of relationship the new orders between men and women everybody's very confused because it is the standards and the forms of thousands of years suddenly the page of history the page of relationship the page of creativity has been turned, and there isn't necessarily a manual that tells us how to or where to. And that's why we try to return to old manuals, which have their problems. One thing that comes to mind as you're speaking is that I'm reminded again of your story of uh, praying in front of Chickie's closet when you were six. And yes. then, you know, there's that verse in the Bible, <clears throat> you know, Seek and you shall find, knock and the door shall be opened. But one thing I've observed many, many times is that when people have an earnest intention to awaken, to realize more, to do something, then nature responds. It's as if the gods say, hey boys, we've got a live one here, let's give them some got juice. got a live one there. Let's yeah, give them some, give juice, them some juice, you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, if people are wondering, you know, how can I get as enthusiastic as Gene? How can I be so optimistic? How can I be so productive? I would say, you know, whatever lights your fire, just put your energy in that, in that direction because that to which we give our attention grows stronger in your life. So, you know, whatever inspires you, whatever you, if you want to meditate, yeah. if you want to, you know, whatever really gets you going, put your attention there. And I, I, you could probably quote, Goethe said something wonderful about how if you, you know, if you just sort of start in, in that direction, then all sorts of unexpected and unforeseen um, influences come to your aid. But you just have to start and persist. And then you, you build a momentum and, and you get the wind of the divine intelligence in your sails, yeah. to throw in a few metaphors. <laughs> well, a man's reach... A man's reach must exceed his grasp for what's a meta for. <laughs> uh, no, I, I, I find the wind in the sails. We, we are interdependent, you see. It's in, and as the Buddhists say, interdependent co-arising. And as you begin to create this energetic momentum to the doing of something, that, that then you are carried. Then the universe says, as a hot dog, we got a live one there and you discover that you are in a state of co-creation. And the so-called miraculous 
happens. Miracles are merely the activation of more patterns of reality than we normally allow ourselves to see. And the miraculous becomes an everyday thing. The right phone call, the, the, the right person. Everything we have to remember is really interconnected. And if we become passionate in one, one or more kinds of things, then that passion creates uh, collegiality, uh, companionship, uh, relationship, and all these things are interconnected. I mean, we, we are bonded electrons, if you will, very large bonded electrons with each other, just like showing that one bonded electron has, uh, is, in, is, is in sync with another one. So if it turns right, the other one turns right. If it turns left, the other turns left. The work of John Wheeler, the, 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 the complementarity of it all, yeah. That's why the new physics is providing us with wonderful uh, both not just physical but psychological and spiritual metaphors. It's, it, it is a fractal. The new physics is a fractal of the, the wisdom of uh, sages of, of over millennia. All of this is coming. So we are a great big unity. And, and one of its uh, metaphors is is that of uh, the phase transition, where in a laser, yeah. for instance, if yes. you get the square root of one yes. percent of the photons to yes. entrain, then the rest exactly. of them sort of join in, and you have this coherent right. beam. So applying that to society, we don't know how close we may be to actually a rather sudden and dramatic shift once we reach the hundredth monkey level of of uh, you know coherence. Well, what I see around the world and in so many different groups as well, I mean, is I see people becoming part of a coherent beam that is very, very different from what you get as the news, you know, on the Internet or on television or, or, or whatever. But it is people are looking for the negatives in the coherent beam. They're not looking for the, the creative forms that are part of our daily life. Yeah. One of the things you've come back to several times is the role of women. I was listening to something just this morning about this group of women in some African country where there had been continuous warfare and it was ruining the whole economy and society and making it you know, hell for everybody. And women got fed up. And somehow or other, the men were in this hotel conferring with each other about trying to reach some kind of solution but you know, they're they're for the first time in a long time being fed well and in a comfortable place and all and they're really enjoying it so they were in no rush whatsoever to uh, reach any kind of resolution and so a whole group of women encircled the hotel and joined arms and said we're not going to let these men leave this place or even let any food in until they reach some kind of solution <laughs> and uh, you know men tried to break their little line they wouldn't let them through so they ended up reaching a solution in about 24 hours. I think this probably reflects something deeper in the collective consciousness of humanity that where men, the, the society has been patriarchal for so long and I, perhaps we could blame a lot of the life-threatening problems that plague the world on that patriarchal mentality. Uh, and maybe something is shifting in the collective consciousness now that is resetting the balance. And perhaps not to become a matriarchal society, but no, to be a, be balance, a balanced society. <laughs> a balanced society. Yeah. yeah. So go ahead and elaborate on that, if you would. Well, what would a balanced society look like? And that's something that we, there have been wonderful inventive novels about that. Uh, what was his name? Ernest Kallenbach, Kallenbach who wrote the book called uh, Ecotopia. This was about 30, 40 years ago, where you had a balanced society. 
And it was really pretty funny because the the women ran the governments and the men were all artists and musicians and painters and they became very, very creative. So it allowed men uh, another bent for their, for their efforts. But, but do look at that, Ecotopia, uh, probably came out in the 70s, I believe. Um, but I, I think the important thing is that we are the ones who are inventing the balance. Now, I've been seeing little stories popping up many, many years. Give you an example. In 1991, I was in India, South India, and I uh, was in a village where every Sunday they put up the television set, the old Brahmin lady who owned it, in the tree, and people came in. They tied up their water buffaloes, and they came in and sat down and watched something that all of India was watching at the time, which were the many episodes of the uh, Ramayana. It was very beautiful, and, and on Sunday, they would come and they watched this, this great story of the story of Rama and Sita and how they had lost their kingdom and uh, went to live for, uh, what was it, for 12 or 14 years in the forest, the idol, and then Sita is abducted by Ravana, coming in from Sri Lanka, the Ravana of ten heads, and, um, and then the great war to bring her back, etc., well, it was so beautiful. It was just gorgeous. Uh, the sets, the costumes, the singing, the music, the dancing, uh, the glory of the words. And uh, as I was sitting there in a state of marvel, saying, boy, I wish we had something like this in the United States, the old Brahmin lady turned to me and she said, oh, I do not like Princess Sita. She is much too passive. She's too much passive, very, too bad, very bad. You know, she just sits there crying and waiting for Rama to come and rescue her. It's much. It's a very bad example. We live in India. We are much stronger than that. We have to change the story. I said, uh, Madam, the story is at least three or 4,000 years old. That's right. It's too old. We have to change the story. It's a very bad example. We are much stronger than that. And then she was having a conversation with the... Uh, all these people, mostly farmers, were sitting on, sitting on the ground watching this. And they were all laughing, and they were putting in new ideas. And I thought, my God, this is like watching the rewriting of the Bible in a small town in Mississippi. You know, it was, it's how odd it was. And, and I, I was just, just absolutely shocked. And she looked at me, she said, she said, listen, don't be, don't be so shocked. You know, this is, this is the rise of women. This is the rise of women. You have to realize this is going to happen all over the world. You're seeing it happen in India, happen in India, happen everybody, everywhere. And then um, uh, it came to the end, and there was a commercial. And then what came on? But Dynasty. Boy, was I embarrassed! <laughs> dynasty. I mean, said, oh, sister, don't be embarrassed. Don't you see? It is the same story. I said, How can you say it? It's the bad man, it's the good man, it's the bad lady, good lady, people, beautiful clothes, flying through the air. Good versus evil, yes, indeed, it is the same story. So here, downloaded by the satellite, is Dynasty, following upon this extraordinary ancient story. And it was really also about the need for the rise of women to stop the pattern of the warfare. And, uh, and, what, and what she was saying, it is the same story. It is the same story. So this is part of the myth. There is a new myth rising. You know, we are 
mything links. We are mythic beings. Get beneath the surface crust of consciousness of almost anybody, anywhere, as I've tried to do in many places, and you find that we are filled almost instinctually. It comes in with mother's milk. We are filled with the great stories. It's part of a deeper part of the collective psyche of the human race. But we were also seeing what I was witnessing there in India in 1991 was the changing of the story. I guess, uh, you know, the Me Too movement is probably indicative of this changing story that you mentioned. Um, and there are a number of other very helpful signs or ho- uh, hopeful signs that, that are kind of arising. Uh, on, on the other hand, you know, things are looking a little dark in, in the political climate. Um, you know, we've withdrawn from the Paris Accord and we're, uh, you know, undoing a lot of the sort of progressive, environmentally friendly um, le- types of legislation that um, the previous administration introduced. So it, it almost seems, you know, like we're regressing and progressing at the same time. There's some kind of tug of war going on here. Um, which is also a famous story in the in the Indian literature of the gods and demons having a tug of war with a yes, using, yes. using a snake as a rope and and I think Mount Meru <laughs> as the thing that the rope wraps around right. and and yeah. uh, and by doing that they they churn they they produce nectar out of the cosmic ocean or something um, <laughs> so maybe that's what's happening with this with this polarity I mean that's that's the word you hear on the news all the time uh, you know political commentators are saying how polarized we've all become and we, we seem to be becoming more so so where do you think that is going to end up. I think the question of the polarity or the the divine dialectic that is always between things that then begins to generate in its polarity a third thing, which is the nature of the dialectic, isn't it? Um, but there's there's polarities in everything. There's polarities in nature. There's polarities in biology. There's polarities in, in the way the sun, electricity. I mean, look at things. Polarity comes with reality itself. The point of the polarity is it causes us to go deeper and to generate the next thing, the, the third thing. And that's why I think that as the polarity becomes more intense, as it is doing now, that what is also trying to arise, in sometimes in fashionable, sometimes in foolish ways, sometimes even in ways that are so far out we cannot believe that it exists. I mean, for example, what is one of the things that is arising in our time all over the world? The belief in other cultures elsewhere. You know. mean another planet, other galaxies and planets Planets, and stuff? galaxies or whatever. Sure, Star Trek, the, Star Wars, all that. But when, but when you look at the nature of what is the mythic form of our time, it's science fiction. It's a major mythic form. So that in, let's say, in the, in the late 19th century, Jules Verne is writing about the ships under the sea, the journey to the center of the earth, the going to the moon. Yes, and that happens. In uh, the 30s and 40s, it's about societies in terms in collapse and a brave new world, 1984, and that happens. In the 1960s, stranger in a strange land and many, many uh, 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 remarkable stories of uh, societies that are both breaking down but are also breaking through which is something, the collapse of the regression of societies that then begins to create new societies. Uh, the stories of automatons, robots, here come the robots, here come the robots, you know, and here they are. 
but also what is happening in the, the mythic, the big mythic things of our time is um, uh, societies that have broken down, the, uh, the end of utopias, the opposite of utopias, the, the dystopias, a lot of, lot of science fiction, the end of the world and the beginning and the beginning of new societies. That's huge. But also beyond that, the new things that you find nowadays is people, often women, by the way, who are out there and on the frontier creating new worlds. Also the, um, the going inside to find alternative worlds. Uh, some, it started as fairylands, but now it's more than fairylands. It's evolving. It's these strange evolving societies that you find. It's like the Wizard of Oz, which is why it's so popular now, that you go over the rainbow, you go over, you leave the world as it was into the world that is trying to emerge, and that's the fairy tale stuff. So going, going into that, what I'm seeing is the, the new stories are emerging, but they're always about this part, not always, but the tyrant who comes and the very naughty man, <laughs> it's always a man, who comes, is destructive, is narcissistic, brings the breakdown of the best of the older societies, and then it is followed by, not by a unique individual, but by people coming together and co-creating new orders, new societies. That's, that's, and that's what I'm seeing in terms of following this pattern, this mythic pattern. Having said that, do you have a sense of a timeline? Are we talking, you know, election cycles, years, decades, centuries? Uh... I, I believe that within the next, um, let's say, 80 years to the end of this century, we're going to see uh, much more totality of breakdown, certainly. And then we're going to see what is already happening. It's just happening in beneath the surface crust of ordinary uh, political uh, or social consciousness the emergence of new ideas, new, new ideas for society, new forms of being. I, I believe that absolutely from what I'm seeing literally all of yeah. the world. Unless, uh, you know, in, in case 80 years sounds discouraging to people because, you know, most of us watching this won't be alive in 80 years. In fact, nobody will watching this unless they live a long time. You can have heaven on earth now. Regardless of what the rest of the world is going through, you know, you can develop a state of experience that pretty much enables you to live in joy and bliss and wonder and creativity and so on. So, so don't let the state of the world discourage you. And, um, you know, who was it that yeah. said uh, it's a lot easier to, you know, put on shoes than it is to pave the earth with leather. So, you know, just put on your own spiritual shoes, so to speak. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> and, well, that's uh, why, well, that's why you have the rise of... of you know, the, the, the rise of so many, uh, not so much spiritual movements as people seeking the spiritual paths to, to enter, to bring eternity into time, to bring a larger sensibility of what yet can be. Um, my, 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 a lot of my work is, as I said, social artistry, human development in the light of social change. I've trained many, many people and they go into societies and society, and these are people of all races, they go into societies that are in difficulty and they work from inside out and they bring very real change. I mean, this is happening. You don't get this on the front pages because it's hard and deep work. It's deep work. They're afraid of the deep work, but the deep work is going on everywhere. And that is, that's the untold story. 
because what 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 Sita did in the things is that she in in the new story is that she would arrange she would she'd stop the war and arrange for uh, a, a whole new order of society and that's what is the, as I say the old lady was saying Sita is stronger than we think and that's part of it the the the, the children of all the lands must be honored that's what we think I mean just. If, if one would just write out every day the good things that they see happening and then decide which ones are the ones that speak to them to enter into a new order of action, then we start having another world. Yes, we're going to see very hard times. We have to educate ourselves for that. And that's probably in community, collective community, one kind or another. But I do see personally that by the end of the century, that or maybe even before, we will have... Uh, a whole new order of uh, global civilization with high individuation of culture. Culture is not becoming less or Americanized or Russianized, but becoming more because the creative depths are rising. That's a good point. Um, worth touching on for a moment. Uh, you know, using that forest metaphor that I used before, you know, in, in the Amazon, for instance, where the ground is very fertile and it gets plenty of rain, um, it's not that all the plants become the same. They, there's huge diversity and variety, Absolutely. you know, because the, because the ground is so rich and nourishing for the yeah. plants. And uh, so this kind of world you're talking about won't be kind of all, you know, everybody the same, and thereby somehow unity is created. There can be very deep and profound unity and harmony and yet, simultaneously, an even greater diversity and flourishing of, of culture. Undergoing a sea change to something rich and strange. <laughs> this, this meeting of hitherto privately divided and distinguished worlds. We're at that point of, oh my God, look who's just come across the border. Oh, like, ah, wait a minute. Look at the richness in, of, that is there. Look what this culture has can give us, that we can give this culture. The Western egocentrism is something that has a great deal to answer for. And, and it is dying by its own weight and, and narrowness. The center cannot hold, mere anarchy is loosed upon the world, the best lack all conviction, and the worst are filled with passionate intensity. What rough beast is our come round at last? goes slouching to Bethlehem to be born. That's the rough beast, the, the emergent new being that is going into a, a whole new sacred understanding of ourselves and our time. We are in sacred times, and we are borning. This is borning time. A couple of brave souls managed to send in a question, even though our live stream yeah. wasn't working today. Uh, so let me ask you these, and, and then if, if, if you have the time, I, there's some other things I'd like to get into, but um, okay. if, if it's getting a little... Yeah. No, it's all right. Go okay, on. good. So this one is from a fellow named Rahul Kulkarni from Bangalore. He asks, how can one overcome or work around the cultural conditioning that heavily color one's perception and thinking and which um, are continually being reinforced by the limiting beliefs and prejudices of that same culture? Well, I think Rahul, is that his name, Rahul? Yes, I, I think you've answered it. <laughs> you've already, you know, you've talked about 
culture and the culture being in, inhibited, but at the same time you're aware, and especially in India, of many, 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 many other kinds of cultures. And it is, it is an, not only an honoring of these other cultures, but allowing yourself to learn something of them, to learn to eat their foods, which you can certainly do in India, and to dance their dances and to have real conversations. Um, one of the things that I've done in India, because I'm, I'm an old India hand in my own way, I'll give you an example. So I was doing something for the Tata Company, which is one of the, the, the beerlers and the Tatas. Well, they're, they're, they're the, the big wealthy things, but uh, they had the young, they had the young, very high caste uh, uh, young uh, executives, you know. And uh, we're a wonderful group of boys, by the way, I might add. They said, what have you been doing? And I said, well, I went to the village over here and I went into a very simple temple and I was looking at the statues of the gods and an old man who had grown up during the British rule, spoke good English, said, sister, do you know what those are? Now there is, there is Vishnu and Vishnu he is the manager. He gets make sure the way it works. There is Brahma, the creator, and over here is, uh, you know, is 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 uh, Shiva. Shiva, but it, it is all goes away in the great fire of being. It comes back together again. And there is Ganesh, who lifts away all the obstructions. But after all, it is only what did he can Namarupa. It is all name and form. Ultimately, ultimately, it's all big one. And I said, and you, you, I said, you, you guys, you're talking about these people. Yes, they're they're terrible. They're just simple, simple peasants. They don't know anything. And I said, wait a minute. This man just taught taught me more than I've learned from you all week. <laughs> you know? Anyway, I arranged for them to uh, meet people of the village and these very rather elegant uh, elite young uh, or Kshatri men, high 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 caste people. And uh, from the village, they also brought in a young boy, eight-year-old boy, who was a genius on the the drum, you know, that's a genius at the time. And he, he 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 typed out so many intricate rhythms. And then I had them talk to each other about the problems they faced. The one who could really, in the elitist group, could not really was having a terrible time with Sanskrit, and somebody from the uh, the village also talking about. Uh, things that they were trying to understand in the planting season because the weather was changing. But anyway, back and forth, back and forth, until we got into the fact of a kind of collective humanity. And the result was, is that they created situations so that they were only good for cleaning toilets, but going into training for management. Yes. And at the same time, then uh, the, the little boy teaching, giving them tablet lessons, I mean, I, I've done this kind of thing so often, you know, that it's it's just sort of automatic with me. But when you bring, you, again, you cross the great divide of otherness and you discover that the other so-called others have talents that are part of your hidden talents that you don't even recognize. And suddenly you realize that you can play the tabla or you realize that you have a sense of the orchestration of management. I mean, uh, again, this is what I mean but it means putting people into situations where this great appreciation exists. And you were saying things earlier 
uh, Rick, that essentially what you were saying is that what you appreciate is going to appreciate. So I, I try to bring in, I try, yeah, so and I try to bring in situations where this kind of cold appreciation can take yeah. place. And there's an interest, there's a valuable nugget in what you just said, which is that um, I think in the Western society we have tended to regard um, traditional cultures as primitive and that they don't really have anything to offer us and you know they have very simplistic understanding of the way the world works and all and then some people obviously read books like black elk speaks or they they go to peru and take ayahuasca and you know they, they're sort of looking into what the, prim, the the so-called primitive cultures may have to offer but perhaps it's much much more than we realize and perhaps if there were a true flourishing of all cultures ancient and modern we'd find that the ancient cultures have as much to offer the, the so-called modern as, as we, as the modern cultures do them. Yeah. 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 But, you know, to answer Rahul, it's a question of getting out of your own limited social sphere, not just visiting, but interacting, eating the food. And now, of course, I realize in India you have a caste system issue, which is pretty hard, and that you're going to have to work with yourself. But if, if people would just say, every week I will do something where I will cross that, I'll cross the great divide of being another being other and look for a kind of co-humanity. And it generally it is found in the arts. It's found in arts, it's found in music, it's found in uh, the crafts. And above all, it's really seeing the other as the God in hiding. Obviously, the internet is kind of doing that. I mean, it's yes, it is spreading yes. everything everywhere. Um, you know, it's it's a many to many kind of arrangement now, as opposed to one to many. Um, you know, I wouldn't have been able to do what I'm doing right here years ago. I, I I would have had to own a television station or a network or something too. That's right. That's <laughs> and, right. You know, nowadays, anybody can do it. Now I'm, you're your own network. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But anyway, this thing about God in hiding, I, I like that phrase. It'll shift our gears a little bit, and I have another question that came in. Uh, and that is that, you know, I often like to think that God is hiding in plain sight because if we look closely at anything, and particularly with the, the aid of science, which science has enabled us to do in terms of looking more microscopically and fundamentally and, and with greater understanding of the way things work, we, we see, like, unbelievable awe-inspiring creativity and intelligence displayed. And when you see that, I wonder how any scientist or heart surgeon or anybody else could be an atheist because they're they're staring at the marvel of intelligence right in the face, so to speak, on a daily basis. And that's, that's more of a comment than a question, but do you, do you kind of like see it that way too? And, and you know, I mean... Don't you feel that the divine is just sort of shouting at us from every little bug on the sidewalk? Yes, but it's also to cultivate, again, what one had in one's childhood, the capacity to be surprised by joy and to always be in a state of astonishment. When I was eight years old, I went to a very great school, PS6, where sometimes they would take groups of us to meet the great elders of the time. We met Helen Keller, and I'll tell that story in a moment. But we also met Albert Einstein. 
Einstein was in the habit then of, of meeting with groups of children because he found that very intriguing. And so we went there, and uh, he was very sweet. He seemed a little vague. He had a lot of hair. <laughs> As I recall, he had two different colored socks on, but very sweet. And one of our smart aleck kids, these are New York kids, you know, he said, uh, Mr. Einstein, how can we get to be as smart as you? And he said, mm-hmm. read fairy tales. We didn't like that answer at all. So another smart aleck kid said, well, Mr. Einstein, how can we then get to be smarter than you? He said, oh, read more fairy tales. And which he then turns out, he meant the imagination and that his strongest quality was not a talent for math, which he really didn't have. But what he had is it was a huge imaginative capacity. That was his biggest thing. Thus, he could ride the light beams, you know, and, and he could experience the things in his whole body mind in such a way that then it could percolate through one of his channels, which was the scientific or the mathematical one. And that, that taught me so much in the, the power of imagination. Bring imagination, as I said, you get then back into the imaginal, the great codes of existence, which are happy to rise and meet your imagination so that you co-create with the universe. So that was one of it. And then I, we also met Helen Keller, and uh, that was so wonderful because uh, our teacher, Miss Riley, you know, read to us from Helen Keller's memoir, which where she talked about how for the first, uh, what, well, for six years of her existence, uh, she had no concepts. She was this strange little being just grabbing food over the table and uh, not really making the, the, the connection between words and concepts and things. And Miss Keller grabbed her by the hand and took her out to the ivy-covered pump house. And in one hand pumped the cool, clear something, and the other wrote on her hand, you know, attack water, W-A-T-E-R, W-A-T-E-R. And Helen writes, I stood still wrapped. That word water dropped into my mind like the, the sun in a frozen winter world. And I woke up, and I, I learned the name for 30 things by the end of that day. And so with that, we were put on, what bus was it? Was it the Madison Avenue bus? Or was it the Fifth? I guess it was the Fifth Avenue bus. And we went to, I think it was 66 or 67th Street. And it was the, Cos- it was the Cosmopolitan Club, I think it was, so I recall. And Miss um, Keller came out, handsome woman, large woman, quite a handsome woman. She would have probably been in her late 60s at the time. But she spoke to us in this luminous voice of someone who has never heard speech. But we understood. And because she had learned to make sounds, you know, maybe, maybe touching the lips. Anyway, uh, it, was, it was an interesting voice. And it was like the voice of the ocean or the voice of the whales. It was, it was quite an extraordinary voice. You can hear it sometimes on the YouTubes. You know. And they then asked, does any child like, would any children like to speak to her directly? And my hand shot up, and I didn't know what I was going to say, but I knew I had to talk to her. I went up, and she placed her entire hand on my face. And with the center of her hand, this is what I remember, she read my lips. And with her fingers, she read my expression, my character, or whatever. And I blurted out with a child's savage honesty, Why are you so happy? 
<laughs> and she could understand that just by feeling your face, huh? Yeah, she could. You know, it wasn't just the lips. It wasn't just like, though, there may have been some of that, but it was also the... But I, but I said, why are, why are you so happy? And she laughed and laughed. She said, my child, it is because I live each day as if it were my last. And life in all its moments is so full of wonder. I think she said wonder. And life in all its moments is so full of wonder, marvel. Was she damaged? Of course she was. Was she damaged? Not at all. She had rewoven the remaining filaments of her senses into a great net, if you will, in which she caught all of reality. And that gave her her, her enormous commitment to service, to making a difference, to helping disadvantaged people, which she did all over the world. My grandmother knew her too. My grandmother went blind and she, she did braille before she went blind and then eventually read braille because she was blind, but she had some kind of relationship with Helen Keller. Um. Well, you know, years later, uh, I was, a, not so many years later after that, but I was a Girl Scout. I was a Girl Scout for many, many years, one of the best things that I ever did in my life. And uh, we, uh, we worked at the Lighthouse for the Blind in, in New York City. And I read books for the blind, and, but I also learned the Braille and realized uh, it is not just a different kind of way of knowing. It, it gives you op- openness to an entirely different extended reality. It's very interesting to lose a sense for a while and then all the other senses wake up in an extraordinary way, as they did for Helen Keller. She was brilliant. Um, here's another question that came in. This is from uh, Marty in Kansas City. And um, hopefully this question will be clear. He says, what do you see as the relationship between recognized presence and synchronicity? <laughs> what a good question. Yes. <laughs> well, of course, my old friend Deepak does a lot of work on that. I mean, he wrote a very interesting book about it called the spontaneous fulfillment of desire. In fact, he and I are about to have a long talk about that. Um, so uh, synchronicity is merely the statement that everything is interconnected. Among the ancient Celtic peoples, it was called the ways of weird. Not weird as we understand. Hey, man, you're weird. It was nothing like that. Well, the weird was the way of the enormous connectivity of things both seen and unseen and the way they would come together if you put your mind or your awareness to it, you would see the connect- connections. Um, but so that that would have to do with synchronicity. Presencing, I, I feel, I feel is where you allow your beingness to be filled with the presencing of the unity of it all. And synchronicity is one example of your seeing uh, what it is that is the nature of reality in the first place. And so things that seemingly are disparate begin to come together. And the presencing is the great unity itself, felt in a, perhaps in an emotional or spiritual way. I was wanting to talk with you about Evelyn Underhill's eight organic stages. Oh, uh, do you my, feel like my, you'd like to get into that? Or, or have yes, we that's been going long- to... No, I'm I'm fine, but it's a very long statement. I mean, I can make a short version of it, perhaps. If, if well, I, let's, I, I can let's try. spend ten or twenty minutes on it if you feel like you, you can spend that much time. And by the way, what kind of doggy do you have? We have two of them here. This one 
This is the new guy. He was found running loose on the streets, and uh, he's a Chihuini, which is a dachshund and chihuahua. And his name is Theo. He has these big bat ears. I can see that bat ears. And this one, this is Luna, and I know you had a dog named Luna. I did indeed. She is some kind of a rescue also. All our dogs have been rescued. She's some kind of a rat terrier mix or something. Has a strong hunting instinct. and Really um, smart. Yeah, smart and affectionate. And everybody says how beautiful she is. She and, is very beautiful. Yeah. So this is Luna. Very, very beautiful. Yeah. Hello, Luna. I'm glad you asked that because we wanted to show you our dogs. Evelyn Underhill, who was a mystic herself, when she was actually fairly young, uh, she wrote a book called Mysticism. Um, 1911 was when that book came out. Now remember, it was perhaps about 10 years before, not even that long, that William James came out with the varieties of religious experience. So there was an enormous amount of in interest, especially in, well, England, America, and France, on the nature of the mystical experience. Again, it's interesting that all this came out just as Europe was within a few years going to plunge into its worst war ever, World War One. So it's always the chaos and the cosmos that come together when we rise up at the same time. And she talked about these stages um, that she had studied. Now, remember that she was a student of Western mysticism primarily. So she didn't have a great knowledge of the shamanic things or of even of the Eastern forms, because it was around that time that there was the gathering, but yet not so much the publication of the, uh, the understandings and the scriptures of the, of the East. There had been some, but not for what that subsequently happened. Fascinating is about the same time that quantum physics arises at the same time as the harvesting of the wisdom traditions of the world. So, in both being uh, parallels of each other, fascinating ways. So, Einstein and uh, uh, Joseph Campbell's um, teacher of rising at the same time. Okay, now, her first stage is awakening. You wake up, you know, whether it is, whoa! It's all one, like what happened to me when I was six years old, five, five years old. <clears throat> because that is part of it, a natural instinctive part of being. It all makes sense. It is all one great unity. It could be nature mysticism, that you're sitting at a beach and you see the sparkling of the sea and suddenly you are in a drop, but you're, that drop is all drops and all water everywhere. It could, be, uh, it could be looking at a person with love and suddenly it is all love. Love is the nature of everything. However it happens, it brings one to a sense of one's unity with totality. It is the great waking up. And that is often, and she uses the, well, one of the great examples is um, uh, the, you know, Cosmic Consciousness, the books on Cosmic Consciousness, which also came out a little bit before that time, where the man is riding in a, a coach, I guess this is probably in the 1880s, 1890s in England, and uh, suddenly everything is fire. Everything is the pure light altogether. So the, you have people writing their own experiences, a lot from the early, that, that time. Um, and it's interesting because it's also the time that will result in a great deal of war, but it's also the time of a great deal of transcendent knowledge going parallel at the same time. And then she follows it with 
purgation or purification. You say, uh-oh, I've had this big experience, but I got all this heavy baggage of my dislike and hating of Zen and all look at the really naughty things that I did in my life. Uh, and it's, it's purging time. And it's, uh, it can take the form uh, as, well, as, as Buddha, uh, Siddhartha, Gautama did of going through all the worst forms of purgation of, of sixth century India, <laughs> you know, walking in a squat for miles or eating one little rice a day, a little or a little juju, and he said, "I got so skinny, I, I pressed my belly button and felt my backbone." And driving himself to near death until he was lying in the waters to try to cool himself off, or his last minutes he thought of life, and suddenly said, "Why am I doing this? I have just this body to achieve my enlightenment." No. I'm going to sit under this tree until I find enlightenment. I think it was more complex than that. And so he comes into that statement of enlightenment and discovered that his self is also all that there is. His beingness is part of the great oneness. So, in, and then in modern days, we might call it restorative justice. You may have done some really lousy things, and you may have enormous regrets about it, or just keep dwelling on same old, same old, in a state of, what should we call it, serial monotony of negative thoughts, <laughs> you know, and living a serial monotonous life and saying, I, I will get out of this. How? Well, by acts of kindness, acts of goodness, restorative justice, and that's been one of the great poems. Um, and then, of course, the third state is, is illumination. Suddenly you are clear, and when you're clear, everything becomes light. You are illumined. You might be illumined creatively. You may be illumined with the understanding of the inherent beauty and brightness of existence. But you are illumined. You become a bearer of light, followed by high creativity, voices and visions. With the mystic, you are able to live in that state. With the high creative you enter into profound knowledge of reality, of the way things work. You become a high creative. You are in that state of co-creation, co-creating with creation itself. Followed by introversion. We, I've got to go deeper. I've got to go deeper. I've got to be able to get to a place of sustaining this. And so you pursue deeper contemplations, entering into even deeper states of being wherein a larger measure of the understanding of totality resides. And this can also then become a, a great movement among peoples, and that's when you form the sanghas, the great community of those who are part of the seeker. But mostly it is also entering into the depths of one's own luminosity. Um, <clears throat> and that, of course, is then followed by joy, incredible states of joy, which may be the natural bliss of creation. When I watch my dogs in the morning, lying on their back, all 350 pounds of them, kicking their paws in the air, looking at me, laughing, it's now food time, let's eat joyously, now let's go run up the hills, go and throw the ball, throw the stick, wow, isn't life wonderful, We, you know, but the sheer joyousness of, of everything, the celebration of everything, followed by the fact that what goes up must come down. 
and the dark night of the soul. And suddenly, suddenly, every kind of negative thought you've ever had about yourself and about life rises up. What you thought of as beautiful becomes an empty stage set, cardboard existence. And uh, that's when you really have to talk to a friend and say, I am in such a weakened state. Will you be God for me for three months? (laughs) And just tell me what to do. Yes, I will be God for you for three months. Don't worry. But it is the inevitable catharsis of all the old think, old patterns, even the patterns of the society. You become stupider and stupider. You think nobody likes you, including your own dogs. Of course, your dogs have another idea. And followed by the great unity of being, where finally you break through and you realize it was all a great oneness all the time. And you try to live the life of a God-inspired, a unity-inspired being where daily life is spiritual process. Daily life is spiritual exercise. Daily life is the exaltation of being the one in the many and the many in the one. And you become a beacon to others, an evocateur of the sacred in others, the one who is the midwife of souls. That would be my example. That's a beautiful summary. Um, mm-hmm. I sometimes have debates with people about the direct versus progressive you know, approach to spiritual development. And some people think that um, you know, all you have to do is kind of realize that you're, you're already enlightened and, and that the whole notion of progressiveness or gradual unfoldment is too much no. of a too much of a concession to Maya or something, and uh, but I think <laughs> practically speaking, I mean I can't think of any examples of anybody who's just sort of woken up one day and said that's it, I'm done, I'm finished, and and who really is, and that you know we we're naturally all works in progress as long as we draw breath. We are works in progress. We are works in progress. And the universe is a work in progress. Sometimes, I mean, and sometimes in many spiritual traditions. You bring in that the, the, the Tibetan word is yidam. The yidam is the river to the source. So the yidam might be an archetype. Uh, it might be a Buddha or a Christ or a Mary or a Saraswati or um, what might be even legendary figures that have been elevated to um, spiritual sourcing status, you know. Joan of Arc or whatever. But a yidam, many people then develop a relationship to an archetype who may at one time have been an ordinary human being or may have been an angel, or however people see it. <clears throat> but the yidam then supposedly has a larger frame of beingness and brings that angelic or that spiritual quality and you are uh, able that you are able to be helped, be trained. You know, some of my the work I do in terms of spiritual teaching is showing people how to be in touch with essence or intelligence that can be helpful, can be a guide on this way. Have you been guided by a partic- particular archetype yourself? Yes. Yeah. Oh, my God. And that archetype was Athena, I think I heard you say. Yes, it was the Athena. It was there before I was born. I would not have been born if my mother did not have a dream of an Athena type that said, 
when my father wanted me to be aborted. And he was telling my mother, get rid of the kid, we're in the middle of the Depression. <laughs> Wait till I get on the Hope Bob Hope Show and you can have as many kids as you like. And my mother didn't know what to do. And then this dream kept coming of a limo that picked her up. <laughs> this is in her dream. Took her to the palace. Lovely, tall, lovely woman in long blue kind of mud gown. It was a Greek thing. And they would dance and sing, and she called her Blue Dell. Now, Mary, you must keep the baby. I know Blue Dell, but my husband's, I don't know what to do. Well, just ignore him. <laughs> anyway, until it was too late, and I was came in my mother's seventh month. Very small. And my father was a great father, quite frankly, after I got born in the after. He thought I was lots of fun. Oh, he said, Kittle, you're more fun than a barrel of monkeys. It became myself, my self-image. And then I did not know really about this until my father was driving me to Esalen to interact with Alan Watts. And he said, well, kiddo, you turned out pretty good. I'm glad we decided to keep you. I didn't know that at all. <laughs> and uh, so that was my, and I asked my mother and she said, yes, the story was true. She had never told me this. And I said, when she was in her 90th year, we were pretty close to that. I said, mother, this... Um, palace that you went to? Was it like the Doji palaces when I took you to Italy that we saw in Venice? Nothing like that. What was it? Well, it was more like a Greek temple, really nothing. <clears throat> and um, this uh, Blue Dell, uh, was that her name? No, that was my pet name for her. She had another name. Really, mother? And what was it? Well, name some goddesses. I said, oh, Aphrodite, Hera, Artemis, Athena. Stop, that's who it was. <laughs> yeah. So it's been, it's not like worshiping Athena, where people worship Mary or anything like that. It's nothing like that. It's just a sense of a kind of energy um, that is has to do with culture and civilization and making it work, you know, which is really what part of my life has been about. Creativity, I mean, it, it, it follows without my even had known about it before, but it follows some of the patterns. Of this, but it isn't like worshiping anything that's something like that. These mm. energies, such mm. as the one your mother was inspired by, are real entities of some sort who dwell on some subtle level and who, who oh, guide humanity. I don't know. I mean, well, Jung would say that, wouldn't he? Would say that that these archetypal structures are in, as would Joseph Campbell, that they are inherent in the human condition, and are patterned according to the culture. So, for example. If we were talking about the Athena type archetype in India, it would be something close to Saraswati, or Bridget, perhaps in the Celtic realms. I mean, you can you can find variations of it, or or is it just part of something part of the creative unconscious that pops up and finds itself symbolically a pattern according to cultural cultural expectations. Um, the Kuan Yin archetype, which you also find in Mother Mary, you know, uh, as well as in other kinds of uh, feminine helping presence. Or is it is it a member of a much, 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 much older civilization somewhere in the universe that part of their jobs or what they decide to do is to go into some of our, the, the, the more troublesome planets <laughs> and peoples and, and serve as a evocateur, as a wisdom figure. I don't know. But they're there. They're there all over the world. 
there are very almost no cultures that I know that don't have. For some reason, that appeals to me intuitively or something. I just sort of feel Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. there are these impulses of intelligence that are entities, just as much as you and I are, that but that, that sort of dwell in a different dimension and that kind of intercede or assist in human affairs and that uh, you know we can kind of connect with or be inspired by or be guided by or so on I don't know just, just somehow it makes sense to me but, but sometimes they are ones that you discover in yourself I mean Carl Jung yeah. discovered one that he calls Philemon mm-hmm. who was a very present guiding spirit or energy for him Philemon but we don't find Philemon which is the great friend the great friend you, you could also think of it as the great friend well, I think if we know ourselves in the deepest sense, then in, indeed that which we are does contain all entities, all of yeah. the, all intelligences, all yes. all knowledge, all everything. Yeah. Anyway, I've probably taken enough of your time. This has been a major undertaking for you, all <laughs> of the technical stuff, and not then, at all. And then no, it's this been conversation a for me too. Um, it's been an honor. And I think we're, we're going to meet in a month or two uh, out at the Sand Conference. I believe you're going to be there. I, I will be there for at least three days of it. Yes. Great. Well, I'll see you there. And there, there I'm, and I'm going to be discussing some of these things, but in the light, especially of the new physics, because I've been exploring the implications of the new physics for for everyday life in the quantum universe, because it opens up then a whole new set of human capacities that most of us have never thought of before. You know. Yeah. I hate to say this, but I thought of one more thing that I wanted to ask you. I, I, several yes. times I've listened to that um, <laughs> debate, or if you can call it that, that you had with Deepak and you, and also Sam Harris and I think Daniel Dennett or one of those guys. Uh, well, you couldn't, have heard, you couldn't have heard it because they cut out my part. Oh. The part what you see. I thought I so heard I just, So it was mainly... I, mean, I said a few, few things, but, I, but most of what I said was cut out. They decided I wasn't interesting. Uh, well... <laughs> and they cut out. I thought it was an interesting debate, but if, if you were to do that over again, perhaps not with a live audience, but around, sitting around in the living room with tea in, in a civilized uh, way, because yes. it, it turned into sort of a zoo. But, you know, what would you what say to these guys? What would you have said in retrospect that you didn't get to say? Or, well, and, what I would have done in retrospect is I wouldn't have gone into argument because there would have been, been no point to it. They were calcified in their belief systems. Yeah. I would have taken them through a series of exercises uh-huh. in which they would then tap into something that was both universal and beautiful. And I mean, one of them uh, was was already a meditator. But yes, he, Sam Harris has done yes, pretty without, serious practice. He's a serious practitioner, but without any uh, theological or metaphysical agenda attached to it. Mm-hmm. But I would probably take him into an experience in which he would feel it very personally, and it would then take on a personal cat, perhaps an archetypal cast. Yeah, but in terms of conversation, no, they were dyed in wool what they were, and this is what they did for a living. They go around and and make make have these kinds of paths. Yeah, but I actually did say things, but it was all cut out. Uh-huh. So you didn't. I I was just there for seconds. Really, <laughs> in terms of what they showed. I remember you were on Woman. the stage. Yeah, but yeah. Anyway, that's a whole another can of worms we we don't have time to open but it's yeah. it's it's a thing that interests me this whole sort of new atheist viewpoint which represents the sort of materialistic paradigm that kind of dominates our culture and you know what it might take to uh, have a, a much more rich and no then you would need an all day 
or two or three days hanging in there with each other. Yeah, like a weekend really symposium get, or something. Yeah, but not not for the hour or so that that it was. And they they came in, and this was something that Deepak and Sam Harris they were already a, a dynamic duo in the argument. Yeah, so yeah. that's that's why it just became back, back to what the two of them did together. I was sorry that I had agreed to that when I found out. Yeah. And I didn't want to do it. Deepak pleaded with me to do it. So uh. I was not represented there, I think I can say. Yeah. yeah. Okay, well, well, we'll leave it at that. Out of all the books you've written, if people want to sort of get started learning more about Gene Houston, which one should they start with? Well, for learning something about me, it would be my autobiography, mm-hmm. which is called A Mythic Life. Mm-hmm which came out about 20 years ago and does contain um, pretty much a good perspective of the kind of work that I do. Okay. And then for the, the, the working book, the working book is um, probably The Possible Human. That's also an early book. Good. Which, so th- th- those would be the two. A Mythic Life is also a very funny book, so I think it's uh. the kind of book people would enjoy. I wish our library had had those two. When I checked these out, uh, the librarian said, oh, Gene Houston. She said, I'm going to put these books on hold and read them after you return them. (laughs) (laughs) Another question I want to ask you is you're still cooking, uh, you know, at the age of 81. You're traveling and offering webinars and all that kind of stuff. All kinds of things. Yeah, so what can people do if they want to actually get engaged in that way with you, do something interactively with you or some webinar? Well, what what they can do is... um, Go to my website, genehouston.com, genehouston, one word, .com, and they'll learn about various things, and um, they they will get regular information about seminars or webinars or whatever it is that I'm doing. Okay, good. And also, if they're interested in going, having a doctorate, taking a doctor with me in in human development and social social change, then they would go to Meridian University, Hmm. meridian.edu. And so it would, it would be that. So it's Some a regular my, accredited university that has oh, a doctorate yes, well, degree. Yes. Great. So th- there's a doctorate degree in, in my studies in, in leadership and social transformation. Mm-hmm. Is so, it online or do they have to physically go there? No, there, you have to physically go there for two weeks. Oh, uh, two weeks isn't so bad. And, and, of course, there, and then yeah. it's also online. Okay, great. But it's, it's, it's very interactive. Cool. And it's a, Yes, it's fully, fully accredited. And then I, through the organization of... Evolving Wisdom, there are all kinds of courses that I've given online, very interesting ones, especially the ones on quantum physics and also the ways of purpose and awakening. Mm. So those are things that you can actually get the whole course. Great. I mean, there's lots of things. Yeah. And go go to the books. I mean, a lot of them are still there. Sure. All right, well, I'll, I'll link to all that on your page on bathgap.com so people can just click from there and find those Gene, things. Not, yeah. Thank you very much. Again, Gene, thank you so much for, for doing this. I really appreciate all the time you've spent on it, and it's really been a privilege to meet you, and I look forward to meeting you again in a month or two out, out in California. Wonderful. Thank you. I look forward to that. Yeah.